This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 3rd of January 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Jon, and here's my co-host, Dave. Hello, Dave. Hello, Jon, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, too. And Happy New Year to our listeners. Yes, Happy New Year to everybody, <laughs> except for people living in the past. Uh, and people that aren't listening, because, yeah. Nah, we have to be nice. <laughs> Happy New Year for everybody. Okay. Okay, this episode is going to be about the sense and nonsense of certifications. More about that in the second part of the podcast. The first part always has our new section. But before that, Dave has something to talk about. Well, we both have something to talk about, but I'll let Dave do it. I do. I have a teaser, and that's not uh, a picture of Jon, um, <laughs> semi-clad, draped across uh, a, a chaise long. No, it's a teaser for a prize that you as a loyal listener, can win. Does that sound exciting? I'm still having a picture in my mind. Okay. Um, so for those people that are still recovering from that picture in their minds, um, yes, we have a we have a prize to be won. Um, so that we will be running a, a listener raffle over the next few episodes. So not starting this episode, we just want to tease you. But uh, this is for a free ticket to the DataWorks Summit uh, 2017 in Munich. So that's uh, running in, in Munich, Germany, um, April 5th and 6th. Um, and it's a f- ticket for free entry to all of the sessions, all of the keynotes, absolutely everything. Uh, the only thing it doesn't include is the uh, the bundled training that you can get as a bolt-on um, that happens before the summit starts. But other than that, it includes everything else, and uh, stay tuned to our next episode to find out just how you can win that valuable prize. Yes, many thanks to our sponsor for this. Indeed. Thank you to Hortonworks, who have provided this. And in fact, we're going to get somebody on from Hortonworks just to get, whet your appetite about the summit and the next episode. I think both of us have talked enough about the Hadoop Summit or DataWorks Summit, as it's called now. And we're both very you know, big fans of that uh, that event. We, I've been going ever since I've known it existed, which is <laughs> for the last five, six, seven years now. Oh, my God, I'm old. But it's a great event. And uh, many thanks for Hortonworks for uh, giving us a prize to hand out in their name. Indeed. We will have something on the uh, website later when the next episode airs, of course, on how you can uh, enter the raffle, what you have to do for that. But it shouldn't be too hard to do and you should have ample opportunity to win the prize. All you need to do is enter. This is where you say something. Like what? I have no idea. And since Dave doesn't know what to talk about anymore, let's go over to the news. And Dave, you go first. Now you don't have something to say. I do indeed. So I've been um I've been following Bitcoin for for quite some time um since you know early cryptocurrency type days. Um and one of the things that came out of uh, of Bitcoin was something around blockchain. Um and it's been something that I've seen crop up um now and again over the last probably 3 or 4 months organizations sort of thinking about how they could use uh, blockchain technology. So this uh, this particular 
uh, article is five enterprise-related things you can do with blockchain technology today. Um, now, honestly, I- I'm still not overly convinced. Um, and I-, I get the the whole idea behind blockchain. So blockchain, if you're not familiar with, it's a, a distributed tamper-proof uh, ledger of transactions um, that you can connect together and that you know one is related to the next you don't actually if you if you change something you don't actually change the entry in the ledger you just append an entry to it with the modifications and it's all kind of cryptographically aligned and it's all very diff- uh, very um, it's made very difficult for you to tamper with um, so obviously that there's a lot of um, benefit in in a system like that um, but I've struggled to to really, really think where something like this can be just plugged into an existing uh, usage. And so this article goes through um, five different things that various organizations are already using uh, blockchain for. Um, and so I'll just run through the, the five quickly. So one is making payments, which I guess is the... Um, the sort of most obvious ones, um, and it's you know being used by uh, UBS, Santander, and Standard Chartered Bank, um, and there's there's a few others um, that are working towards this. Um, there's the identity of things, um, and they, they they use the old quote uh, on the internet: uh, "No one knows if you're a dog." Um, therefore, on the internet, actually, you can use this identity of things to actually provide a, a cryptographic trace of exactly who you are, exactly the identity of the various devices that you own and the devices that connect to your network and so on and so forth. Um, and it's actually being used by the, uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security um, to create a timestamp log of each and every device that's connected to their network um, recording the identifi- identification number, manufacturer, um, available device updates, known security issues, and any granted permissions. And you know this is the sort of thing that would normally just sit in a, a regular um, asset management database. But of course, putting this in blockchain, the, the view is that due to the immutability of the blockchain, it will make it a lot harder for someone to spoof known devices by uh, allowing them to alter the records. So preventing that should make it more secure. Um, uh, others certifying certificates how particularly relevant on uh, on today's episode it happens um, and then the fourth one is actually tracking diamonds um, because diamonds are uh, diamonds are forever as they say um, and the idea is that actually recording the provenance and the ownership of diamonds is recorded in this ledger um, uh, and therefore, you can trace the uh, the ownership of a diamond back to its original sort of cutting, um, and that's being used um, that's being used in production today. And finally, and I find this one just a bit strange: um, pork. Um, not worth as much as diamonds, but in China, um, actually, it, it makes up for that by just the sheer volume that it's consumed in. Um, but it's very important to make sure that the pork is fresh. And so they're actually using it for the fine grain tracking and tracing of inventory. Um, and, uh, you know, Walmart is testing uh, blockchain uh, to do this particular set of tracking. So, honestly, I'm I'm still not, I can still think of 
easier ways to do all of these different things. Um, but I'm kind of interested to see you know what what we'll see happen to blockchain this year. Yeah, blockchain's definitely been in the hype cycle recently, and actually I'm now wondering why we didn't mention it in our bold predictions. I guess we both not impressed enough to actually talk about it in that aspect. And yeah, blockchain was originally used for the bitcoins in a currency fashion, but it actually has nothing to do with currency. It's more about this uh, yeah, immutable log ledger of things that happened. And you had yeah. a very nice way of uh, presenting, summarizing that, actually. I'm going to reuse that one. Thank you. <laughs> and I've seen uh, nobody use it yet in production, but I've heard had a lot of talks with people that want to do something with blockchain, mostly because it's the new hype thing. So we apparently we need to do something. It's usually big companies like banks and financial institutions and stuff like that. The one thing that I'm always uh, hit with a brick wall kind of thing with is one of the strengths, the reason that you can't change that uh, ledger of things that happen to that whatever object it may be is because it's a distributed ledger. You don't control it. It's out there on the big internet and you need to have, I don't know, two-thirds, four-fifths of everybody agreeing to make a change before you can actually have a change made in that blockchain. That's, of course, to make sure that you don't rewrite your own books. Now, all the people I've, I've talked about uh, implementing a blockchain solution always insist to have the entire blockchain distributed network within their own firewall. Yep. There's something of a discrepancy there. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think... I think that's the that's the evolution of blockchain. I think the the sort of having an ability to um, have your own private blockchain environment that can be as trusted as a public blockchain. Yeah, but um, it isn't by definition. Well, I think that organizations aren't comfortable, still aren't comfortable uh -huh. releasing that kind of information outside of their firewalls. Well, there is no information included in the blockchain. I mean, you see ownership, but you don't know ownership of what. Of course, if you call it the blockchain of diamonds, yeah, that gives away something. <laughs> but you don't have to do that. You can just use a distributed blockchain. And actually, in your article, I've just pulled it up for myself. I see that, which one was it? Was it the, the diamond one that we're using, the IBM blockchain? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a diamond of the pork one. So they're actually doing it right by using a third-party distributed thing to handle the, 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 the non-mutability security of the whole blockchain thing. So that's good. Yeah, they're using the IBM's Lumix cloud, it says here. Yeah. But keeping it internally because you're afraid of sharing secrets, well, first of all, your secret shouldn't be in the blockchain. That's not what it's built for. And secondly, well, then don't use blockchain because you're not changing anything. You're not, you're not doing anything different than just storing it as a, a text file on one of your servers. Yeah. That's a very... Yeah, grassroots environment, I guess. Nobody really knows how to use it yet, but uh, it's actually a nice article you pulled up here. Well, it's good to you. see people actually do something with it. Yeah, it doesn't happen often, but Dave did something right this time. <laughs> and with that, over to Jan for his element of news for the morning. Yeah, well, I must admit I've had a, some trouble here because this week has been murder and I had to do this very quickly. And the sad thing was that most of the articles I found were about bold predictions for the next year. And we already <laughs> did that, so I couldn't use anything from those. So I actually ended up with uh, three 
uh, news articles from yeah big business uh, envi- enterprises, let's say, or at least well-known people. And my first one comes from Cloudera. They actually, let me pull it up so I can remind myself what it was. The title of the article is called Achieving a 300% Speedup in ETL with Apache Spark. And it's nothing new. Apache Spark makes ETL faster. But the merit of this little article, well, it's not little, it's reasonable size, is that they actually give you a very nice explanation of the whys, why nots, what happens, what doesn't happen, and so on. So we talked before that people don't like to talk about things that don't happen. Now, this isn't the real use case, but still, it has a bit of lessons learned in there. It's simple enough that even if you haven't done anything with Hadoop yet, you will be able to understand. And it does contain code that for SQL people, and if you do a little bit of scripting, you will be able to go to the next level of the of the, of the information in the article, let's say. The one thing I have an issue with is that the title says 300%, and their conclusion is they increased the performance by 600%. So even by while writing the article, by to gain in speed. Right. <laughs> but it's a nice article. It lays it down quite easily, quite simply. And it actually has an example in there. You can just try it out yourself. And it's a very simple use case, just moving data from one cluster to another cluster. And if you're using it with Hive and Pig, you will be copying to disk a lot of the time. And they just show you a better way to do it using Spark and in-memory. And they actually put in some compression logic in there as well. So it's a nice article. And we don't talk about Cloudera that often, so I kind of wanted to give them a little shout-out here. Fair enough. Over to you. All right. So uh, exactly the kind of article that Jon hadn't looked at, I found one that I quite <laughs> liked, uh, which was the top seven big data trends for 2017, uh, to, published on Dataflock. Um, interestingly, it mentions blockchain 2.0, um, blockchain-enabled smart contracts. Yeah, saw that um, <laughs> Talks a little bit about deep learning becomes smarter and brings us closer, closer to artificial general intelligence. Um, conversational AI, uh, intelligent applications will revolutionize um, interactions. And are these sounding very quite similar to uh, some of the things that we predicted for 2017? I think so. I smell a ripoff, man. This is this is plagiarism, pure yeah, and simple. Yeah, these these people are just ripping us off left, right, and center. Um, they could say IoT, the same about us, of course. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, IoT-related data breaches, um, mixed reality will improve uh, data visualizations and decision-making, and big data as a self-service solution will catalyze big data adoption. And finally, sense-making through mixed data will empower employees, which I think is actually the worst of all of their predictions. But what they, the summary, so I actually think it's actually a, a pretty good article um, and you should go and take a look at it. But the the summary is that 2017 is really the year of intelligence, which I think is a, uh, I think that's a nice area of focus. We're moving, you could almost think of the years leading up to this were the years of data, just collecting the data. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe this year, 2017, is is the year where we actually use all of that data to generate real intelligence. Yeah, it's definitely where the weight of the industry is pointing at. Uh, in our bold predictions episode, I mentioned uh, our chief officer Satya's uh, democratization of AI slogan, and that's definitely a big one at the moment. But good to see that you also had trouble finding good articles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to me. 
Yep. Um, yeah, for my next one, I took inspiration from not last episode, but the one before, because last episode didn't do news, but the one before you had a the nice visualization uh, article, which I really liked. And I came up on a site called The Rhythm of Food. And it's also about visualization. The guys behind these, they're from Google News Lab. They actually excel in making a lot of nice visualizations of a lot of data. And I'm going to put two links in the show notes, one about the Rhythm of Food site I'm talking about here, but also the blog of one of the contributors of that page, because he has a lot of other interesting things to say. So have a look at his blog. But this Rhythm of Food, maybe just click on it and see what it looks like. What they do is they have looked at how many people bought certain certain pieces of food like apricots and how things like veganism and superfood are being mentioned on Google search. And they have a very nice visualization putting it on circular clock dial kind of things where you can see very easily how these search patterns have a uh, a time-based tendency where end of year people search for champagne and in the summer people search for ice cream and it's a quite a long page and have done predictions of everything and anything in there there's also it's an interactive page you can change the the search a little bit and it's a very nice way of, of visualizing it again i really like what they're doing here very very cool and yeah i it, it's just a lot of the the visualizations that people come up with, um, particularly this kind of you know random questions that you'd never even sort of thought up, <laughs> are just brilliant. Absolutely love them. Yeah. And I'm just I'm sort of just scrolling through the page at the moment, and just it it's really a good visualization. Uh, it's, you know, picture tells a thousand words. A good visualization at a glance can just give you the information that you need very, very, very quickly. And uh, there was some, there was actually, there was another article um, that didn't make the cut for this. It was a little bit older actually. Um, but the um, 2016 information is beautiful awards um, came out a couple of months ago. Um, we didn't mention it at the time, but your, your, um, your article has just uh, triggered that in my memory. Um, so if you are interested in, you know, the visualization of data. Um, perhaps we'll put a, a quick uh, link to that in the in the show notes. But some of the visualizations there are also just amazing, and actually give you some some really interesting um, things to think about with uh, everything from um, the Earth temperature timeline um, through to uh, income equality in LA and Chicago, um, the chart of cosmic expansion. Um, number of spies in the sky, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, uh, it's just great, a great set of visualizations, and uh, you know, the awards uh, really bring them all together as well. So, no, yeah, nice find. Yeah, and again, the other link for the blog post for the blog of the person that contributed to this. Uh, it's also a very nice read. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Other ways of looking at it, and also, uh, yeah, what you should and shouldn't do. The blog post, the blog site, sorry, is called the Functional Art, and it's a uh, it's a nice read as well. It goes across a whole bunch of things on it. Now, on the food page itself, the one thing that yeah kind of jumped out to me is the peppermint graph. Apparently, peppermint is very high in the minds of people during the year 
end period. So I'm mm-hmm. guessing all people want to kiss each other Happy New Year and make sure their breath doesn't stink. An excellent plan. <laughs> <laughs> Back to you. All right. So my final article is um, something that I, I came across, which is how to discover hidden value in your customer journey. Um, we we often talk about customer journey as being one of those um, elements that people um, start to look at fairly early on. It's a, a common use case. Uh, but this article, I, I think, really nicely breaks down what the customer journey is. Um, and you know, they describe it as the customer journey is the path that the customer takes through various touch points as they interact with your brand and your products. Um, so it, it actually goes through and spends the time to, to call out each of the individual uh, touch points, um, each of the areas that you could start to um, you know, gather information from. Um, it then talks about why some organizations um, aren't um, actually um, gathering information about this um, and then goes through actually what the impact can can be if you get this right and if you do this um, you know correctly some of the the value that you can actually gain so it's it's just a really nice article that goes through um, at a high level but it, it does go through the various elements that you need to consider when you're looking at a customer journey Um and some of the there are again some some reasonably nice visualizations as to how some of these touch points interlink and really how you can how you can find some of the value in this journey and how you can present that back to the business. So I just think it, it's just a, a nice article for someone who's getting into their first customer journey use case. This could provide a, a nice little roadmap. Yeah, it looks nice. Nice infographics on it as well. No, I'm not going to read through the article now, but mostly when I hear people thinking about their uh, customer journey analytics, they're talking about customer churn, which is a bit of a negative way of looking at it, just trying to avoid losing business, but not looking at how to, how can I generate more business. Does this article also go into all the things and just predicting churn? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's very much it's very much focused on the the overall journey. So it's focused on you know anything from. Um, interaction with um, online web services or um, internal agents, um, store interaction, um, any form of mobile application, um, and just the the overall continued journey um, and how that can help. So, yeah, much wider than just churn. Okay, nice. Okay, my final article, I think it is already. Yep. It's a article from SAS, the big analytics company. But it's actually written by Amanda Farnsworth, who is the head of visual journalism at BBC News. So both of those things kind of piqued my interest. SAS is a big analytics company. BBC is also a big news company. So it must be an interesting article. And actually it was. And they're actually giving an uh, example using the uh, Olympic Games in Rio that uh, went on last summer, I guess. But what the article talks about is how can you attract people to read content which they think is not for them. And the example here is sports. You have people who are into sports, into the Olympics. So if a certain news article goes online about the Olympics, they will read that. Fine, we've got that covered. But what about, in my view opinion, the other 90% of the world who doesn't like sports? I'm supposed to laugh now. 
how do you get them to read that content too? How do you get them to consume that content? And of course, go to the advertising on the page and stuff like that. Because the whole idea of having online articles is to get people into your customer journey analytics, I guess. And what she uh, presents here is a case, and that's where the visual journalism comes in, is make your your content, um, make it resonate with the, with the reader, with any reader by making it personal. And in this case, for the Olympics, what they did is made a little web page where you could put in your own uh, physical measurements, how, high, how tall are you, how much you weigh, uh, your birth date, uh, if you're male or female, and then they will find your match amongst the Olympic athletes. And by doing that, first of all, you draw people in, because this is a very nice infographic you can put on Twitter and Facebook, whatever, to draw people to the page. And the moment that they found, the moment that people have actually entered their data in there and they get this result, oh, you're most like this sumo wrestler if you're unlucky. (laughs) (laughs) They have read part of it, they're engaged with the content, and they will read the rest of the content as well. And probably any follow-on articles as well. So it's a way of using data and big data as well. Because behind this thing, of course, you had to have a kind of a, a machine learning thing behind it to quickly make that match happen and stuff like that. You have to have the number crunching to prepare all the data. So it's a big, big data uh, use case. And it's just their way of making what might be considered boring content relevant for people who are out of, outside of the, uh, uh, what do you call that, uh, demographic they're aiming for. Well, no, they are aiming for it, I guess. But it's a nice article. It's... Uh, seems to be written by somebody who really knows what she's talking about and it's a nice read it's not too long that's the disadvantage of this and i'm thinking that sas is using this to wheel in uh, prospects of course obviously that's why why shouldn't they and i've been trying to find a bigger article about this but i haven't so if anybody out there has a more longer version of this article i'd be very interested to uh, know about it and if not it's a nice insight indeed indeed i think it's uh the other other thing that that you that's linked from that article is actually the uh, the Reddit thread um, that's related to it, uh, which has you know well over a thousand comments uh, from people. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's which actually makes quite amusing reading. So I'd recommend you go and check that out as well. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's it's kind of nice because they they talk about the right at the end they talk about the audience reaction um and sort of um the percentage of people that actually did fill all of their information in and uh, got their results at the bottom of the page and um the sort of percentage of people female to male mm-hmm. that were using it and that sort of thing so it's it's kind of interesting it does give some some sort of useful demographic information as well Nice. Yeah, it's it's nice that they include the numbers there as well. Gives gives the, the the content some credibility for me. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be trying it later. <laughs> well, I'll try it myself, and it wasn't a sumo wrestler, but still, I'm not happy. <laughs> <laughs> Guess there's a lesson there as well. Be careful not to alienate your audience. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and I think that's all the news articles for today. I think so. Okay, then we'll have a little bit of music, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the sense and nonsense of certifications. You are back. And welcome back. 
So this is actually a, a topic that uh, Jon came up with. And uh, interestingly, we both interpreted the, uh, the title differently. So we thought, hey, why not do both interpretations of it? <laughs> so the, uh, the title is the, as Jon mentioned earlier, the sense and nonsense of certifications. Um, so first of all, um, Jon, I think you were going to lead the conversation into educational certifications and uh, what you think they mean. Yeah, because I kind of thought of this subject uh, for an episode when I was uh, forced by my employer to get a Microsoft certification. Now, I've never been a believer in this kind of educational, have an exam and then you have a certification and now you prove to the world that you're the master race. Because in my opinion, it all depends on the exam that's behind it. Now, I have a number of certifications personally. I've got certifications from Red Hat. I've got them from Microsoft now. I've had certifications from online education uh, MOOC uh, websites like EDX and Coursera. And it kind of struck me, there's such a wild growth of certifications. You can get certified in anything and everything. What does it all mean in the end? Is there still any value to be derived from these certifications? Uh, unless yeah unless anything really because i kind of lost my faith in these certifications and i'll still probably be doing them because i know some people still have beliefs that these things work but in my opinion it's a bit of a laziness i mean uh, these things are used often in a situation where you're applying for a job Obviously, and the HR person across the table can actually look into a lot of information these days on the web because a lot of our lives, definitely, definitely if you're in the technology in, uh, infosphere, you have Facebook, you have LinkedIn, you have all of these things where people can check up on you and what you've done. If you're just going to see, oh, he's Red Hat certified, so he must be good, that really doesn't make sense anymore today, does it? So I'm I'm largely in agreement with you um, in that I think the certifications generally um, don't have as much impact uh, as actually someone that can prove what they've done in in a in a similar role or in a similar area um, in in the real world, as I would say. The I think some of the things that you kind of alluded to are around the differences um, in the examinations. I mean, you and I both have a sort of um, a bit of Linux platform in our background. Both have both have been Red Hat certified at some point or other, um, and those for me are still what I would call real certifications. They the exams actually um, still involve um, hands on going and fixing stuff. Um, and then it's sort of marked via some sort of automated script that makes sure that you have, for example, repaired the file system in the correct way or set up the cluster in the correct way or whatever it might be. Um, so those sort of certifications I still have um, some respect for, uh, but that's at sort of one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is very much, you know, answering multiple choice questions um, where those for me just have less value. And it's very difficult to, unless you've actually been there and done them to know which is which, which of the (laughs) certifications have a real, what I would call a real hands-on exam and which of them are largely paper exercises that, you know, if you can remember a few things, you can probably get 
you know, a passing grade pretty much regardless. Or just guess. Or just guess. Um, yeah. yeah. It's also harder to identify those uh, uh, examinations because, uh, for example, I've done some Hortonworks certifications as well while, when I was working at Hortonworks. And the first one I took was a multiple choice question thing. And the second one I took, they revamped it into a here's a VM, make these things work kind of yep. exam. So they went from a, what well, we both agree on not how to do it exam to a better version of it. But the certification name still stays the same. So if I now see somebody who's certified Hortonworks administrator or whatever it's called today, I can't even figure out which exam he got. Yeah, did you did you do the multiple choice or the hands on or you know what year did you do it in if you know what the cutover is? Yeah, agreed. Very difficult yeah. to actually kind of line that sort of stuff up. But and even if you go beyond that, um, I mean, you may have personal experience of one or two types of certification. But you know, as as you mentioned earlier, there are, there was a myriad of different certifications out there from vendors, from independent organisations. Um, and you know, just understanding what those are would be almost a full-time job. So, yeah, yeah it, I, it's far better to actually um, have something that you've done yourself that you can demonstrate that you've done. Um, we're seeing a lot more sort of, um, you know, a lot more public release of what people have been doing on you know, things like GitHub with projects being um, openly available. You know, sometimes it's, it's difficult to do that if you're not in a directly developer focused area mm-hmm. um, but even so having you know good proof and being able to talk eloquently and uh, and in detail about projects that you've been involved in uh, what you've actually you directly contributed to them I always find um, you know far more far more engaging and far more interesting quite honestly as as an interviewer um, mm-hmm. I'm far more interested to understand what people have done, the challenges they faced, how they got around them, than I am understanding a list of certifications that they have that may or may not actually have any value. Yeah, I agree that that, that, would, that is a better way of getting to find out what you can do or can't do. But it does have a problem that I can write an article that I have done amazing things, but no, there's no oversight. There's nobody checking if it's true or not. So that's the thing that a certification does do. You do do an exam by a third party who is supposed to be, uh, well, not uh, fraudulent. So if I have this little sticker on my uh, CV, then apparently I did pass that exam. If I put on my LinkedIn profile, I did this amazing thing. What's the value in that, right? Yep. I mean, there's always going to be an element of having that conversation and digging into it in enough depth so that you feel that you trust that person. But yeah, Yeah, it's always a, it's always a, a leap of faith to a certain extent. Yeah, and the conversation isn't always possible because uh, we're now talking about certifications in the light of hiring people. But I've had a number of uh, customer engagements when we want to have consultants from a partner do something for that customer. And how do you know you get a consultant that's not learning on the job but is already an expert in the field you need him to be? Typically, you go, yeah, he's certified this and that, so he is good. There is no, never going to be a situation where you can have a consultant that's coming over from, I don't know, the US for, for all I care, uh, having him fly over for a conversation and decide, nah, we're not going to take him, we don't like him. But it, it is it is getting uh, more and more common, especially in this kind of space where 
um, having someone that really knows what they're doing is even more critical and more important because the technologies itself are so fast moving. Mm -hmm. It's becoming, in my opinion, a lot more, um, a lot more frequent that customers are actually saying that they want to not necessarily interview uh, their potential consultants, but they, they want to have had a conversation first. And that can just be a 20-minute phone conversation, but they want to have had that initial uh, that initial chat before they will actually sort of um, move ahead and allow that person on site. And I think that's a perfectly valid uh, request coming from a customer. Yeah, but do you feel yourself being capable of let's call it evaluating somebody over the phone. I mean, I think we've both been involved in recruitment uh, activities where you have to do a technical review of the the person that uh, wants to do the interview. It's very hard to have a five-minute, ten-minute conversation then decide yes, no. And definitely in this field, because it's a very complex field, as you say. Yeah. And a lot of people want to get money from this field, so there's a lot of yeah wannabes in there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's definitely it's definitely not easy, um, and there's no kind of there's no magic bullet here. Um, but you know, as with a lot of these things, with experience, you start to uh, detect some of the BS a, a lot quicker, mm-hmm. and you start to pick up on some of the things that I guess some of the things that um, you identify in other people as being positive traits that you you continue to focus on those kind of elements. Uh, but yeah, it, it is always it is always a bit of a lottery. Anyway, this is part of the, the conversation about my interpretation when I gave the uh, sense or nonsense of certifications idea to Dave. But Dave had a totally different reaction to that title, didn't you? I did. Um, so when I hear the sense and nonsense of certifications, uh, my mind immediately drifts towards um, ISV certifications, so independent software vendor certifications, and. So there are a couple of different um, levels of partners certifying each other's software in this kind of space. So you have um, an underlying Hadoop vendor that will, um, to a certain extent, provide certifications for parts of their solution or platform or whatever it is. So, for example, at Hortonworks, there's um, security ready, there's governance ready, um, there's management ready. So if you if you integrate with Ambari, if your service integrates with Ambari, you can get a management ready certification. If you integrate with Ranger, you get a security ready sort of uh, um, certification. And, and if you integrate with Atlas, then there's a governance ready certification and so on. And there are a number of these different things. You can have yarn ready certifications and so on. Um, and those are, those are useful, um, useful sort of, guidelines um but my my problem with the isv certifications is more from the other side so if you um if you have a third party vendor solution um they then control uh, they have under their control you know which uh, version of their product they have certified and tested against which version of the underlying hadoop platform um, so whether it's a visualization engine or an ETL engine or so on and so forth. Um, and the sort of continuing battle that almost every single um, customer that I work with has, and this is not, uh, this is, don't get me wrong, this is not an old problem. Uh, this is a problem that has been uh, in existence since certifications 
began is that the third-party ISV certifications move slower than the underlying platform is moving. Now, the area that I think where this is, where we've reached an inflection point and where things are changing is that, in my view, the underlying platform here with big data and with Hadoop specifically is moving faster than a lot of other technologies that have been underpinning previously. So if you look at, you know, the Linux platform, you know, if you're looking at whether you're looking at rail or SUSE, um, a lot of those certifications have been around forever. And the third party ISV solutions, there's, you know, on day one of a new release, there's already a whole big slew of third party ISV solutions that are certified with that latest Linux platform release. Um, if you look at what's happening with the third-party solutions, and again, whether it's kind of ETL or visualization solutions or uh, layered-on security solutions, um, they seem to be lagging and in some cases quite significantly behind uh, the progress of Hadoop releases. Um, and you can see this almost everywhere. And you know some technologies seem to be um, some need, some seem to be like over a year, over eighteen months behind in their certification, and it's just, I guess my my take on this in particular is, whenever you're looking at making, you know, if you, whether you're looking at making a first move into big data, or whether you're looking at um, maybe revitalizing the the options the technologies you have within your organization if you're going to have a big data direction or a big data um, approach to things moving forward take a look at your standard isv tools that you use already your your visualization your tableau your click view your so on and so forth take a look at what versions they are certified with as as the hadoop platform and see how far behind they are then actually get in touch with that company and say, where's your latest, you know, what's the timeline for your latest certification on this latest version that's been out for six months? Um, have those kind of slightly awkward conversations and try and try and see actually who is who is up there with a decent cutting edge set of certifications. Yeah, definitely good advice. But in my opinion, it's hard in the open source world. In the purely commercial world, often the releases get delayed until the preferred partners have certified their add-on solutions so that uh, when you do the big press release, you can say, here's a new version and all these people are already working with it, so go and upgrade. In the open source world, one, it's a lot more volatile. You have no idea if there's going to be a big change a big spurt of innovation going on this month or if next month the two biggest contributors fell fall ill and can't do a lot of work so it's a lot less predictable there and these projects also typically don't wait or don't feel interested to wait for commercial or third-party isv uh, solutions to certify on their thing before they put out a press release that version 3.5.7.3 is out and True. A, yeah, and avoidably that means that you will get a, a, a delay in these things. The other thing, the good thing about open source, in my experience anyway, is that open source has a 
bad reputation, an undeserved reputation for not caring about backwards compatibility. In my experience, open, open source products are much better at keeping backwards compatibility or at least offering good ways of getting your old version into the new version world without too much of a hassle. Yeah. A lot of commercial software just say, uh, oh, buy a new product and get uh, get consultants over and we'll help you for it, ka-ching. So for the open source, you're right, of course, having the, the certifications in there, having certainty that it works, it's definitely a good thing to have. But even if the numbers don't add up and even if you can't get in touch with the other party, I don't know if I would say advise a company then to not use that uh, that piece of software because one, it's open source. You can get into the code and just fix things yourself if they're not working. And if you don't have the resources or will to do that, there's probably somebody else who has done it already because you're not alone in that boat. Yeah, I mean, completely agree, actually, with the um, the piece of your conversation around um, open source generally um, focusing on good backwards compatibility. We've had a few maybe slightly um, shaky um, steps in, you know, maybe things like Spark um, early on, where that, that went through a few um, slightly awkward changes, should we say, but... Overall, I think you're right. Open source does make a very strong um, pitch towards making sure that backwards compatibility is maintained, compatibility is maintained, or at the very least, there's a very sane, easy kind of migration path. And I think part of the challenge is to make sure that third-party ISP solutions are actually integrating with these open source projects in a way that is sane and sensible and therefore, you know, gets the very best out of these kind of migrations um, and, you know, these kind of changes. So, yeah, I think it's just one of those areas where, I mean, each organization will have to make its own judgment as to if a particular tool that you are using today is, I don't know, 18 months or two years behind on the platforms that it's certified, Maybe there are other better options out there, and maybe there are other options out there that are better integrated into the underlying uh, big data space. Yeah, I would agree that two years being out of date, that's no longer software, that's abandonware, and you should be careful <laughs> with that. Uh, on the other hand, maybe the tools you're using are also out of date, so that might just be the perfect fit for you. I have seen customers running uh, production with very old versions of stuff because that just works, and we're afraid to upgrade because things might break. Yep, That's very true. Now, the other question I'm asking myself about the uh, ISV certifications is how trustworthy are they? Now, I haven't been bitten that often, but sometimes what's on the tin is no guarantee for what's inside the tin. Yes, we're certified to work with product, whatever, enterprise version 5. Asterisk. <laughs> Read the small print. Always, <laughs> always read the small print. Yeah, but the small print usually says something. No rights can be derived from this statement or something like that. Now, I'm reminded of the, a conversation we had with John Murtick from the ODPI, where they actually have a live, uh, on GitHub, a live uh, testing suite where you can just get that solution, which is supposed to be ODPI certified, run that test suite, and it'll come back with a yes, no. 
So it's a very easy check, which I think will also make people that want to declare they are ODBI compliant think twice, make sure that they are, because it's easy, easy-ish, testable for the end user, for the for the for the customer of that software. Much of the other uh, certifications, and even the ones you mentioned, the yarn certified means it runs on yarn. I can make my toaster run on yarn. It's not going to help my Hadoop environment. Mm-hmm. Toast. <laughs> I mean, yeah. What do you do with that? How how can you get real? How do you know which certifications are trustworthy and which aren't? It, it is, or it are is being true. applied trustworthily. Let's say it that way. Well, again, I mean, I, I just go back to my previous comment, which is which is read the small print. I mean, look for overall something that's certified with version X Y Z. Um, that's a great first step, um, but that. That shouldn't be the be-all and end-all of your investigation. You know, if, if you're, um, for example, if you're running um, Ranger-based security, you know, does it does it work well with that and interact well with that or other issues there? Um, if you're using Atlas for governance, um, as I'm sure you will be in 2017 because we made a bold prediction or I made a bold <laughs> prediction. Um, I didn't agree. You know, so on and so forth. So it, it's it's, again, it's just about... That certification is is just the first the first step along the path of making sure that this uh, all these things will plug together, um, and it's a good indication. But don't don't just purely rely on that. Yeah, I think in the end we're going back to the the conclusion we had on the first part of this certification talk. You should have a talk with the guys and see if they know their stuff. Yeah. It's valid for people and valid for software solution, ISV add-ons, all the same. Yep, very much so. So, conclusion, certifications, they're a start but not the end. I think that is a perfect way to wrap this up. Then go ahead and wrap it up. All right. So that is about all we have time for today. Um, Hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode. But until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, send us questions, and please give us a five-star review on iTunes. I still don't like iTunes. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's um, 2017. Get with I the know, program. I know, and I know, and, and iTunes still not doing it for me. Um, however, um, iTunes reviews and it, just iTunes in generally really does help um, new users discover this podcast and broaden our audience. So if you if you don't think we deserve the full five stars, that's okay. But in that case, contact us via the feedback form on our website. Or give us uh, an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or other feedback. Also, if there's something you'd like to talk about on the Roaring Elephant podcast, give us an email about that as well. My name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Bye.